welcome to the welcome to the modernists <laughs> over the top. Welcome to the modernist society. God, I can't. I, I'm. I need dental work so that I can actually open my mouth and speak. Also, it would be helpful in <laughs> chewing food. I can't really bite. My teeth don't really come together. It's been a problem for most huh. of my life, really. I feel like when I like got wisdom teeth, it like pushed my jaw out so that it doesn't align as much. It used to like align more. It's weird. I don't know. Yeah, I only recently had half of my wisdom teeth removed. I need to go huh. take care of the others. So, huh. and, and my hope is that magically my teeth will just realign somehow. I don't know if that's. I don't think true. so. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they have obviously there's all these whatever Invisalign and, and Smile hmm. Club or whatever it's called and and all those things are, are interesting except that basically you have to have those things in your mouth like constantly mm-hmm. which I guess is perhaps good for dieting you know de-incentivize snacking because it's just like labor to have to yeah. like take the stuff out then brush your teeth and put the stuff back in so that may be an incentive to do it, I guess. Keep trim. Yeah, my problem ain't the snacks; it's the beer. But <laughs> I think I could, I think I could wear Invisalign and still drink beer. So I don't know. Yeah, 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 indeed. Um, well, you know, as as you know, I am I am a crazy person, as you know. But, but like, I think this week was my my frugal thing is, I'm just not going to buy beer. Instead, mm-hmm. I'm just going to drink all of the hard alcohol that's in my <laughs> liquor cabinet. So, uh-huh. so it's like somehow this is uh, beneficial to me somehow. I guess I'm not, you know, I I have not outlaid $13 for a six pack, mm-hmm. but instead I'm drinking like weird Filipino rum that for some reason has yeah. bubbles in it. I think I saw yeah, I saw some Instagram updates of this nature. You know, I mean, if it, the lesser of two evils for me, I mean, I am a cheap, cheap man, but I'd rather, I just can't be drinking that hard stuff because I just like I just go to the wall and the meter comes home from work and is like, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> so like, I gotta just I gotta drink something that I can like have some quantity of without going insane. So, <laughs> well, my new favorite drink as of late is a uh, green hat. So it's it's basically um, bourbon, sugar cube, bitters, and green chartreuse and hmm. a little lemon twist. So um, I was gonna be furious if it wasn't green. So that's good. <laughs> Indeed, yes, yellow chartreuse. Um, so as I was saying, welcome to the Modernist Society, a place where we bring you intimate conversations with practitioners of the high and low arts, replete with all of the esoteric digression you've come to expect from the medium. I'm Jason Mojica, joining you from New York. I'm Eric Attens, here in Chicago. <laughs> uh, our guest this time is Shane Bugby, artist, writer, publisher, provocateur, hustler, uh, and more. Uh, Shane is one of the most prolific makers of things out there. Uh, if you follow him on Instagram, you'll see what I mean. I mean one minute he's got a new book out, uh, The Joy of Satanism, for example. Uh, the next he's turning out a slew of new sculptures, then he's designing a batch of patches and pins, then it's posters, then it's back to books, then 
he's putting together a festival of some kind, and then he's building Al Jorgensen's microphone stand, et cetera, et cetera. Got um, a podcast that comes <clears throat> out several times a week yeah, as well. Yeah, he has a podcast that comes out, I think, 10 times a week, if, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, I was going to say, actually, he he is known for a, a 24-hour uh, broadcast back in the day, back in the early days of the Internet. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I first met Shane back in the early 90s when he was publishing a monthly comics anthology and uh, then became known for showing poster artists, then for the bold move of publishing the work of artist Mike Diana when he was at his most radioactive um, you know, Shane lives in Chicago, and because of that, this marks the first episode of the Modernist Society in which the guest is in Eric's domain. Yeah, so this will be the first good one. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, quite a bit. I, I I didn't know what to make of Shane because you you and he sent me so much stuff that it was just <laughs> overload. But uh, fortunately, uh, he's a very nice, thoughtful guy, very easy to talk to. So I I very much enjoyed our chat and uh, thought that for all the prep I was worried about not doing that it it was came it was easy to do and and uh and fun can i ask you uh, i mean i kind of put uh, this may be an edit i don't know can i ask you about like hong kong stuff or is that not oh, appropriate sure, for sure. this so uh how many coronaviruses do you have <laughs> well is it, i mean one is all you really need so, yeah uh, um are you nervous about that i mean for my own complete and this is like I, I know that I should be ashamed to admit that I am so self-interested that the wife and I booked a trip to Japan, and I just don't want that to get ruined. Even though I understand it's more important that the world isn't wiped out by a virus and people stop dying from it. Also, I am just concerned about my own vacation. Um, <laughs> were you like, I mean, it's kind of odd timing. Were, are you, were you nervous about that at all or no? Uh, no. I mean, well, I guess so. I went to Hong Kong uh, to produce a documentary on the protests there um, in early January, early to mid-January, and um, that outbreak was just kind of beginning to make news in Wuhan, and you know people were getting a bit. I think there had already there had been a couple of cases in Hong Kong at the time I was there, but it you know wasn't kind of a full-blown outbreak until shortly after I left. So. I mean, I had been aware of it, but um, uh, it, it didn't start making international headlines till after I left. Uh, that you know, so Hong Kong is a city that is a direct flight from Wuhan, and and uh, you know, I the it, it certainly did cross my mind that I had just been at their international airport and uh, in. A cylindrical tube with uh, a bunch of people transiting to uh, New York, um, but you know, uh, I'm fine <laughs> as far as I can tell. No, but no, I wasn't too worried about that. I mean, a, I guess, shit happens, and, and <laughs> you roll with it. But B, um, everyone we were meeting with was generally, uh, you know, wearing masks, <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. not necessarily to prevent themselves from catching disease, but to uh, evade facial recognition technology. So yeah, it was a pretty sanitary experience overall. Wow, that's intense. Um, 
Well, I mean, you might as well parlay that into a plug. If people were interested in seeing what you produced from that, how do they how do they do it? Uh, I'm not going to plug it yet because now is the hard part. You know, going and shooting films is the easy, fun part. Um, figuring out how to distill all of that into something that is not boring for someone else to watch is the hard part. So uh, as soon as I'm actually ready for this thing to come out, yeah, I'll certainly uh, share that. But for now, it'll be like, a secret. I feel like that's the opposite of the old Nohika. Old Nohika was name the date first, then panic yourself in, into doing it by, well, by I'm, I'm, I'm not. Well, yes, but I'm not fully in control of the entire uh, process and its uh, release strategy. So therefore, yes, if, if, if I was fully in control, I would certainly, uh, you know, throw down the gauntlet and announce a date that I could never possibly achieve. And uh, so, yeah. Sweet. Well, good. Yeah. So, yeah, well, let's go talk to Shane. But, of course, uh, as always, we encourage you to uh, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of the things. We're, yep. we're on most of the things. You know, we, we need some ads. We should, you know, I don't, I don't really care about the money. I just kind of want to read ads. Like, an <laughs> old, like you know, where we just kind lot, of inco- I mean, incorporate them into it, you know, like Rush Limbaugh style, speaking of, you know, speaking of medal, <laughs> presidential medal of freedom winners, which I guess we weren't speaking of, but, uh, um, you know, he, I like he, that you've heard enough Rush, Rush Limbaugh to know, like, I don't, I've never, I don't think I've heard besides like a incendiary three second clip. I have no idea what he's, what he's doing. Well, I mean, Snapple was kind of built on rush limbaugh the, the, really I think in the I early, a lot of people don't know that oh yeah in the early i mean in the early earliest days of snapple their entire you know i'm sure i'm exaggerating but i would say let's just say a healthy portion of their ad budget was uh was went rush limbaugh's way and that was kind of like you know you'd be in the middle of an episode of rush limbaugh and suddenly he would turn and start waxing poetic about snapple and uh hmm. so i guess that's where so everyone forgets the Snapple Rush Limbaugh connection. I know that I think a few podcasts I like, and for sure I know Lauren Lapkiss did this on one, like maybe before they get ads or maybe just for fun or when it's kind of new, just just do like just a fake comedy ad. So mm-hmm. that's always an option. <laughs> I don't have any good ideas for one, but I always like when it like it kind of sounds like it's an ad and it's like, we'll be, you know, we'll be right back. And they play the thing. And then there's just this ad for something that's complete nonsense. And then they go back to the show. I'm like, that's great. I enjoyed that very much. I mean, is, is Moo and Oink still around? That rings a bell, but I don't, I can't really place what that is right now. Moo and Oink was a butcher shop, a grocery store in Chicago. They had amazing commercials. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I mean, I would love to do commercials for Moo and Oink. I would love to do commercials for things from Chicago that don't exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Just like a bunch of them. I'm 100% going to cut this if I, if I can't pull this off and and I'm sure, and I think we're about at 90% chance that I cannot pull this off, but you don't, you don't remember like the tagline. It wasn't a tagline. It was the, here's the moon owing thing. If I can do it. (laughs) Moon owing. No. No. How could I not? If I had heard it, I don't know. I either blocked it or I just 
Was it radio, TV? TV. I'm guessing that was not like made to sound old and funny and dated, oh. but just is old and funny and dated. Like that came out eighty three, four. Yeah, I don't. Know, I think that was from the early nineties. Wow. <laughs> I wonder if they were being funny on purpose or if like they were just kind of lagging behind what they should have been trying to sound like. I don't know. Speaking of classic Chicago institutions. Let's go talk to Shane Barkley. Hi, how are you, Shane? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. This is the first time that the podcast has not been recorded in New York, so I'm taking advantage of it by uh, doing it in my bed. So I'm nice. I'm li- oh, nice. I'm lying in bed and I've, I've attached my thing to the edge of my bed. So, uh, there you go. Yep. Nice. Propped up by pillows and, and uh, stuff like that. So just trying to work out the setting out here. Future goals for myself. <laughs> I, I really, sh- there's no reason for me to be wearing pants. So I'm missing an opportunity there. But Right. <clears throat> We're not. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, over. hello. Greetings. Yeah, thank you for having me. So how's the weather? <laughs> <laughs> You know, you know who Bill Ayers is, Jason. Sure, yeah, yeah. Bill Ayers of uh, the Weather Underground. Oh my God, what's that? Those are those Bill are his gloves. Those are Bill Ayers Abercrombie and Fitch gloves. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I wear them. <laughs> yes, it was from the estate sale. Yeah. So, what was tell tell us about the estate sale? <clears throat> well, Bill Bill Ayers he announced on a Twitter like I'm doing this estate sale. And I don't know why they're both alive and all this, but, you know, you get to go to this house and it's where the Obama thing happened. Like, this is the place where the big controversy where Obama did the uh, fundraiser at Bill Ayers house. But I'm going, I got his original communist manifesto. I have his professor graduation gown. I have his, the pot where they double boiler, where they do chocolate for their cookies. And I go in the basement and I Sorry, find his, his fondue pot. Yeah. Bill Ayers fondue fa- pot. Sorry, Bill Ayers fondue pot, his Abercrombie and Fitch knitted winter gloves. And his ice ice ice, uh, ice cream scooper. <laughs> and his cheese knives. His cheese knives. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I go in the basement and I find a handwritten, like a, a, a cookbook with all these handwritten notes. So I'm like, I get it. A $1 it for an it. an anarchist cookbook? No. They're talking like it's Bill Ayers' mom's cookies, stuff like that, all written. <laughs> so I Twitter him and say, hey, can I put out a book of your cooking recipes that I got in your house? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so I'm working on that. There you go. That's pretty good. I mean, this guy's diet of cookies, cheese, and ice cream is pretty intense. Who, <laughs> <laughs> Bill Ayers? Yeah. Well, I, you know, they also had a lot of quinoa. Mm-hmm. I have a, his I have his quinoa collection oh, in glass hey, jars. What? <laughs> quinoa collection? Yeah, I had three different quinoas in three different jars, okay. and then he had 
wild rice, brown rice, red rice. He had all the grains. Very got it. You know, no. Sometimes you know how you, you go over to you know people who collect the wine corks from all of the wines that they've yeah. consumed. But like I was, I was imagining that Bill Ayers had quinoa. I have known he's collected you know just a little <laughs> a little portion from each plate that he's had. Oh, it was just such a wild experience, you know, like it's such a wild experience to go through his place like that. I, I can't, uh, I can't, yeah, I can't even, yeah, it's, it was crazy. I've got all these zines that he collected back in the day, like from their, when they were on the run and everything, like little pamphlets, little zines. No one wanted that stuff. I, I grabbed it all. Uh, showing off my ignorance. It's amazing to me because I know like the Chicago 7, the Weather Underground. I didn't really recognize the name uh, Bill Ayers, but I could think of, I was getting mixed up with Roy Ayers. Everybody loves the sunshine. And I think Kevin Ayers is a music guy too. That's what Ayers... And Bernadine Dorn, FBI. I mean, you know, blowing up the Pentagon, stuff like that. That's uh, <laughs> some accomplishments. And to be a professor afterwards, like no prison time. He's, you know, he's a professor in, or was in, in Chicago. She was a teacher. So <laughs> to get away with that stuff, you'd never get away with that today. I don't think so. Only in America. Let's see. Let's <laughs> say that we had to do like an intro for Shane Bugby. If people didn't know him, Shane, do you have a, a brief encapsulation of oh, your no. persona? No, <laughs> I have no idea how to explain myself. Uh, cultural farmer. <laughs> Two cultural is farmer. Good. Is that what you said? Yes. That's pretty cultural good. farmer. Yeah. Oh, wait, maybe can you just, you know, if, if we're going for quantity rather than quality, can you explain, uh, just rattle off a list of some of the things that you've been doing lately? Oh, okay. I'm doing a Speak of the Devil pod podcast that talks about my history, and it's like three seasons right now, and we're pretty much done with my history, so we're going to we're recreating the show. I do sculpture. I, I was in the uh, enamel pin game and patch game five years ago when it first started, and now it's a huge like art movement, so I was happy to be like an old man that is in a young art movement. <laughs> so that makes me feel still valid, even though it's weird. The pin game is cool, but I do star dicks like Dick Vader. Yeah. So, um, and sculpture, I'm doing fabric art. I'm trying to start a fashion line <laughs> with hoodies and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm at home actually stitching away. I've got a chain stitch machine, you know, and, and three different sewing machines. And, and so I really enjoy fabric art. And, um, so that's, that's a lot of what I do. I've worked with John Wayne Gacy. Um, I don't, you know, what am I doing now? I just keep creating and try to survive off of that stuff, you know? You know, patches and pins and trinkets are a way to sell cheap artwork or artwork to people without money. It's hard to sell a sculpture for, you know, three grand, but a patch for three or five dollars is, is something I think is really cool. Oh, I love slaps like stickers and wheat pasting like that is the shit. I did that stuff 25 years ago and to see that stuff take off like I like slaps like those stickers I put all around Chicago illegally. I love it. That's probably the thing I really enjoy the most is free artwork. You know, that's a generous act. The slap artists, the sticker artists, I think they're very generous and they really liven up a city, you know, like graffiti's turned into something that sells t uh, sneakers now, but slaps are slaps are where it's at. I love that stuff. I noticed a long running connection to Chicago. So I'd like to ask you about your attraction to history with and appreciation for the city. Well, I ran away to the city at a young age. Um, I ran away and was taken in by people like Wax Track Studios. 
and uh, the 99th floor, you know, uh, Mickey over there, and lived in Wicker Park when cabs wouldn't drop you off in Wicker Park after dark. It was it. Now it's a little Schomburg. It's like it's a whole different place. I ran away from Schomburg, and now Wicker Park is not all that different than, than where I ran away from. So yeah, yeah. Where did you where where did you grow up? And what, what, I grew up in the uh, suburbs, but I was you know in a, I'd bet you know I, I ran away, had a home to run away from. That was it was better to run away than stay there, and so I ran away to Chicago. But like the Bucktown Pub, I I that's where they they jumped me into this culture. Like I was in between. I was like, fuck it, I've got to give up on the zines. Nothing's working for me. I'm just gonna you know take jobs. And Wayne Cousy from Freefest said, hey, these guys at the Bucktown Pub want to do this underground magazine, and you're the perfect guy to do it. So I went and met with them, and they're asking me if I know who Crumb is and all these 60s people, and I'm like, no. And they're like, we can't really work with you. And I'm starting to walk out, and I'm like, hey, old man, do you know who Mike Diane is? Do you know who Ace Backwards is? And I'd name off all these people they don't know. And they're like, you're perfect. And they took me in, and I worked there and would work with, like, White Panthers, which they were a subsidiary of the Black Panthers. Um, and uh, <clears throat> let me see, Skip Williamson, Jay Lynch. That's where I met Jay Lynch. Uh, just an, He was an amazing friend of mine and, and mentor uh, at, at times. Uh, and um, who else? There's a famous poet. And I keep, Allen Ginsberg was there once, and I you know, like hung out with him. What so, year was this, roughly? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm old and blurred in those years, but... I mean, early nineties. Okay, early nineties, ninety-ish, something like that. Cool. I, I wish I could. I wish That's I could date things. Good enough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised the White Panthers stuck around. I thought I read because they were they were like the weren't the MC5 associated themselves with the White Panthers. I read that the well, Black Panthers said, "No, thank you. We are not a part of this." Well, they just said, "We you can't. You're not black. You have to do your own white thing." They weren't. They weren't. No, thank you. They were actually. They want the ad. They want the allies. So they were cool about it. I was friends with John Sinclair, and I say was because we went on a tour of What the Fuck Fest on the Pacific Northwest. And when I'm dropping them off at the, and I'm recording this too. I wish I had the audio in my hands, but. I'm dropping him off the airport. We get in this brutal fight and we're yelling and screaming at each other real loud. And he goes, you're a fucking punk. And I'm like, yes, because he, he's credited with creating punk rock. So it's like, yes, John Sinclair just called me a punk. That was like a Academy Award for me. <laughs> I, I'm ignorant as to who John Sinclair is. Wow. He started the he started the MC5. Oh, he was a John Lennon sung a song about him two joint 10, 10 years for two joints or two for 10. And jo when John Lennon got behind his case, he was released from prison after they did a 30,000 person concert in Detroit. They, they released him from prison. They were worried because people were really gathering to pull him out of prison. And so they let him out. Got and it. so it was a pretty, pretty dramatic um, moment in 60s culture the closest the Beatles got to punk I think <laughs> yeah 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 I remember it talking to John Sinclair like I talked to all these guys about what revolution was and stuff like that and John Sinclair's like quit thinking it's a t-shirt it's fucking bankers heads on pikes you know he's like <laughs> you know it was just, I don't know those guys were great but they jumped me into the culture they were t you know they told me this is where you fit this is you know and there was people that would come into the Bucktown pub and they're like you didn't see him he was like old SDS people or someone who blew up a statue in Chicago and he was on underground still, like, you know, 30 years later, still underground, hiding. Oh, it was cool, cool stuff. 
How old were you when you ran away to do that? Oh, I was uh, 15 years old when I ran away, but I was 21. I, I was 21 at the Bucktown Pub, and I had just quit drinking. <laughs> so I quit drinking and took a bartender job. Are you sober to this day from then? Um, oh, yeah, I, I, I can drink without um, drinking for weeks. <laughs> okay. I like to get a, I like to have a good uh, bourbon drunk with the if it's an intellectual conversation. I love bourbon over a long conversation. So I don't do it at bars because you pretty much can't do that. <laughs> so but I can have a drink now and then. Yeah, that was just a young youthful thing. I yeah. My problem right now is with fried potatoes. <laughs> 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 potatoes are great yeah right. p- chips fries you know those, that's my that's my downfall <laughs> yeah. anyway with truffle salt you know Ooh, living it up yeah that's right but uh, let's talk about your artistic output which of course spans decades but again i i, I asked about that kind of you you to kind of just give us a quick rundown of some of the most recent stuff you've been doing but just because it seems so uh there seems to be so much of it and it seems to come at me fast you know fast and furious and i just wanted to get a better understanding of what's driving that in you i mean i i assume you know that it's not because there's a shit ton of money in it there's there seems to be some there has to be something else that's that's driving this like massive output well i i i'm not always sure about that i I guess i could say um like i dropped out of high school freshman year the day i turned 16 um i don't feel comfortable usually communicating with words i feel misunderstood often and i feel like uh sculpture and artwork and stuff shows you know tells me who i am and and tells you who I am and if you can you know like your interpretation of it or or it tells me what you think of me your interpretation of it so it's like it's it's truly like a a, a brute like I, it's my way of communicating like I relate to brute artists self-taught artists that's what I am and and so it's just a way of communicating something that is hard for me to communicate and a lot of that time is feelings or feelings of anger or uh you know love stuff like that so it's you know some of the stuff i've done was of course probably very typical of wanting to have revenge on my parents and society my younger stuff was really angry like it's it's transgressive and uh but as i get older i i don't really i'm not like that you know i i like to draw pictures of wilted flowers and Mm. do fabric art and stuff like that so it's 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 really I, I think it's also about acceptance like looking to find my tribe and artists are are that so i really the biggest joy to me is free artwork like i said with slaps it's like hanging out with artists and going hey look what i did and they're like look what i did and it's just like this it's this childish thing or something but it makes me feel young it makes me feel alive you know it makes me feel like this is what life's about sharing we were talking earlier off the mic about you know why Eric does podcasting? It basically came down to sharing, and it was the same for me. Like, and so there's something in that sharing and, and having someone share something with you that's intimate, almost like lovemaking. And and so and I like a good collab because it's the same thing. It's like intimate, and and uh, I don't know, being intimate with things that are alive are, are is is. <laughs> is uh i think part of what life's about at least if not all of what life's about 
So. I like being intimate with things that are dead. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> I can't help it. Got to try to make some jokes sometimes. But I, I understand what you're saying, and I respect that. That's a very nice. Well, that's just, I guess, what comes off the top of my head when I ask that question. That's uh, what, what I can understand. <clears throat> I would love psychologists to rip it apart. You know, tell me all of these things about why I do what I do. The last sculptures I did, I did nine sculptures, and they're all these, like, creatures. But I started with a jar. And I save all the hair that falls out of my head <laughs> in a big jar, but it has a rubber gasket on there and stuff like that. Okay, so I started pulling out balls of this hair and I put it in smaller jars. And then I sculpted around it and they turned out to be these, these, these uh, creatures, different faces, different bear's teeth I'd use. And so it has my hair in there. I don't know, it was something about that, you know, like uh, immortal, it being immortal too, like thinking that you're gonna have a legacy as an artist, like, but. But nothing lasts, and you know, I don't. I don't know if anything lasts too long. But I want my name to last as long as it can, mm-hmm. because I think I've put out. I've been generous enough to put a lot of stuff out there that I think tells some sort of story to someone. Maybe it's in the future. Maybe no one's interested now. You guys are, but maybe in the future it'll tell some, someone a story. I, you know, and I. I always liked history class when I went to school and science class. And so, I, I, you know, I think it's just important. To, as far as being an outlier or an underground artist, I think it's important to document our stuff because no one else is. And so that's, that's, that's uh, and I shouldn't say no one because you are, but <laughs> I in, in the saying. old day when I started, yeah, in the zine day when, where I met you, Jason, no one, you know, that's what was, that was the cool thing about zines. It's the same thing. It's like sharing like, and, and documenting yourself. And I'm here, I'm, I exist. Do you have any, you've mentioned this a few times before, sort of being involved with things that were like obscure and underground at the time and then later went on to be uh, very popular and also very lucrative financially. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, my friends, friends will call me the canary in the coal mine uh, because it's like trend stuff and like, oh, like Satanism. Like I was the first guy to make T-shirts for Anton LaVey, like Baphomet T-shirts and shot glasses and stuff like that. And now to see it, it's everywhere. People wear it and they don't even understand what Satanism is. And it's like, a, it's a big industry. People make dough off that. But I didn't make a lot of money off, you know, it's not like, like they're making money. So that's one thing, podcasting. Like when we started podcasting, you, people were calling it the ham radio of the internet and like all the publishers I knew, Adam Parfry and all of them scoffed at it. They wouldn't get online. I'm like, dude, there's no stopping this tsunami of internet stuff. Like I'm getting right on it. And so podcasting, it's like incredible how many people still do podcasting, even though we're in a video centric world right now, clips of video, people are loving to do podcasts. And I think they love to express themselves on podcast and think someone's listening, you know, but there's so many podcasts. It grows every day. How I don't even have time to listen to all the podcasts I want. I agree. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like that's something that may have happened to you, but I just feel like that's such a cycle of like, even talking about, you know, MC5 or the Stooges and just how now I remember like, maybe this is subjective and maybe I'm wrong, but I remember when I was kind of getting into like what struck me as underground music, even mid to late nineties, finding that all these old bands and that CBGB's era and even just, you know, Ramones and Talking Heads and Undertones and Buzzcocks, like that was like hard to find. And I feel like now that's like a, kind of like you can go into like 10 20 bars and restaurants in chicago where that's like a normal soundtrack so i just feel like i don't know i just feel there's so much of that that all that i mean i guess everything nothing 
very few things start and are immediately super famous. I guess everything has to start somewhere being sort of obscure and then eventually things get much bigger over time. When it bubbles up, it, it's not the same. Um, and I remember younger when the when I was a young man, the hippie stuff started bubbling up. Tied eyes started to re- be, be, be again happening again. It was like this 20 year cycle where things bubble up. And so like for me, it's like um, the reader did a thing about hipsters in Chicago. And they mean the classic term hipster, like a jazz musician. People get beat up for their art. And I was listed in there. And there's a great I wish I could remember the quote, but it's basically about suburban kids re- coming into shitty neighborhoods and 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 creating these cultures and so i think a lot of times that stuff is picked on by people who exploit it people that go to art school people you know that's what i see with graffiti people that are understand how to exploit it take it and run with it and the people who create it don't get any money and you see that with hip-hop you see that with all of these hipsters they die broke young you know and it's really um and that's an irritating thing to me and in this in this trans, as we get more transparent, I hope that gets less and less. It seems to young younger people fight for their credit, you know, online and stuff, and you know, but but yeah, I I, I don't know. I'm wandering probably. <laughs> well, wait, let's you brought up Satan, so let's go back to Satan for a moment. Uh, there's there's a, a line in your uh, perhaps most recent book, unless you've published another book since then, which is entirely possible given your, your frequency, uh, prolific as an understatement is is, is your most recent book, uh, the joy of Satanism. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay, great. Yes. Uh, there's a line in here. That's, uh, the women's March was the single largest satanic ritual ever performed. Please explain. Well, I don't, that's a hard one to explain it. <clears throat> you know, it says it all what the statements, it says it all, I guess, to explain satanic rituals. Um, no, I, I just thought this that was, that was a good, a good way, a good place to jump in and answer a lot of questions that someone listening to this might have about Satan, uh, satanic temples, yeah. uh, satanic rituals, the church of right. Satan and so on and so forth. So I thought that, this is a good gateway. Let's just, let's, un- let's unpack this. Okay, so so Satanism in, in, in general, is like LeVay explains it as something, a Satanist is hard to nail to the wall. They have a very diverse <laughs> opinions and, and they're, they're very, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> eclectic. <laughs> and, um, and so I'm a, far, I'm a far left Satanist, let's say. And there are people who are far right, and a lot of times they get the credit for everything. So it seems like it's a right wing, fa- almost fascistic, type of thing and i don't see it that way i think i see it as more like a crowley thing or a levee thing where it's liberty they want people to you know we want people to have their liberty and do what thou wilt or you know do what's what they feel in their heart you know feel you know what they're what they're sort of meant to do in life you figure that out and, and instead of having to do things and um the women's march as a ritual <clears throat> it started with a few people you know, and these people hyped it up. It's like marketing. Edward Bernays was the greatest black magician of our time. And he, this, that's what I'm talking about, ritual. He was, able to, he was able to do such magic that he changed. Wait, wait, let me just jump in. Edward Bernays being, is he the person who wrote the book Public Relations? Is that yes, correct, right? Yes, the nephew of Freud. Okay. He created How to Sell War. He, he's the person who sold sold war for the first time, sold uh, spaghetti in a can for the first time, sold cigarettes for, to women for the first time. He was an incredible marketeer. 
And he didn't care. He didn't had no, he did not care. He's like, you want me to sell cigarettes? I can sell more cigarettes. You want me to sell spaghetti in a can? I can sell spaghetti in a can. You want me to sell war? I can sell war. And he, he was really able to use psychological tricks to, to trip, dupe people, colors, everything, phallics, all of it to, to make them hurt, you know, run in and buy. And, and so I felt he was the greatest black, I feel he's the greatest black magician. You know, he, he, he changed the DNA of America, of the world. Like we're a consumer culture here. And so I feel like that's, that's in large part because of what Bernays laid down. <clears throat> and so the women's march is the same thing. They laid down this idea and it, it exploded and it's, it was, it was so huge at that moment, but it empowered women all over the world. And then, the, then, it, then it grew into the Me Too movement, which is, you know, it's like, it's devastating. It's devastating things in a good way. Just like Craigslist devastated paper journalism. It was a good thing, but it was devastating to a lot of journalists working at newspapers. They're like, I fucking hate Craigslist. It's killing us. You know, so I just, I, that's how I see a, a ritual, let's say. But, you know, there's no Satan in Satanism as yeah, I'm, I'm going to totally jump in. I feel like this may just be the natural way that a conversation with you has to go is because everything is a brings up another question about something else that you are connected to. So you, you mentioned Craigslist, but I do remember also another project that you did maybe eight or nine years ago in which has... You, you interviewed Craig Dumark from Craigslist. So I, I'm curious, did you have a conversation about how you hate uh, that he's destroyed newspapers with him? I don't hate that he destroyed newspapers. I thought it was great. Oh, oh sorry, I'm sorry, all, sorry, sorry. I'm all for disperse, uh, dis, uh, dispersing power amongst everyone, power to the people. Um, so I'm all for that. So, yeah, I had that conversation with him. It was pretty cool to hang out in Craig's Craig Newmark's living room and watch him feed birds on his back porch. Yeah, it was that was a neat, that was a call, The Year at the Wheel was the project in the book. And you can find that on archive.org. Archive.org asked for all of the footage. So they have all the raw footage, the book, the movie. You can, you know, download it for free. For listeners at home, I'd like to say it's, uh, I find it charming that Jason, Jason is occasionally interjecting by raising his hand when he would like to be called on. <laughs> He's also wearing a shirt that says Batman in Katakana. Jason, why do you have a Japanese Batman shirt? Um, it's the only thing I asked for for Christmas was this Japanese Batman hoodie. Um, cool. Uh, I'm a fan of, uh, bat manga, which, which, uh, did. Mm, that's a good, that works as a pun. I can no, see that. No, but, but it is actually a thing. There was a, a Batman comic created in Japan. Uh, it's not, it was not just a mm -hmm. translation of American, uh, of the American that, Batman. It was like nice. written and drawn and, and created as manga. They basically licensed the Batman character. Um, yeah. A lot of, there's a lot of like Japanese, they like to like mush words together in like a pun way. So the man from Batman being also the first syllable of man for manga and calling it Batamanga makes, I've never heard of it, but I could, <laughs> makes perfect sense. I could easily see that being a thing. Well, I appreciate you raising your hand because I can run on and get too excited about these things. And so <laughs> I, I do need someone to stop me. But wait, back to Satan. Tell us yes. about Satan. Well, he's the adversary. You know, I mean, that's it. It's just uh, the adversary. And for, uh, for how, me, how, did, how did you get into Satan or Satanism? And, 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 and let's, let's, let's just let's unpack that okay. because, you know, I, I, I grew up Catholic. 
went to Catholic school at some point, eventually read the satanic Bible, thought it was, you know, <laughs> quite inspirational. Remember being, we also brought that to high school just to be mischievous. <laughs> and I grew up Catholic light. I went to like church and CCD, but not actual Catholic. Yeah. And but I, it was equally all that. Tra- I mean, anything that was like Satan-y was like, so like genuinely like terrifying and fascinating and transgressive. And all <laughs> Absolutely. That. I went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school. I kneeled on beans in the corner, all of the good stuff from Catholic school. What's the beans in a corner? Is this like a punishment thing? Yeah. Yeah. I was the same person I am today, I guess, and that was trouble. So I, uh, you know, they make you kneel in the corner. And then if you get in there too many times, they put beans on the dried beans on the floor and you have to kneel on beans. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It did suck. How um, long does that go on for? An hour? Well, for me, it kept escalating for like a half a day, you know, <laughs> 15 wow. minutes, half hour, you know, because I, I couldn't be broken for some reason. So <laughs> I'm not proud of that necessarily. It was just the way it is. Yeah, I just know? got yanked around by the hair. That was all I got. Wow. Yeah. I had right, to put I was, I, think I was in like the last, the last generation of nuns in schools before, uh-huh. I guess, the nuns died out, <laughs> I guess. I can't think of the I had last. To put bubble gu- <laughs> Sorry. They maybe put bubble gum on my nose once because I chewed bubble gum in class. So that was odd. Just to make you like <clears throat> look silly for your classmates? Or? Yeah. Anyone who got caught chewing bubble gum had to put it on their nose. And uh-huh. one time it was me. And I was like, fuck, this is awful. Sounds kind of fun. Well, that's Catholic school for you. But I'll say, so I, um, okay, so this is wild. I had, a, I had a place called Goat Gallery in Chicago where I sold like the Satanic Bible and I had not read it. And then I met a young lady and she said, here, she gave me her satanic Bible. said, you should read this because I told her I hadn't. And uh, I didn't. I read the satanic witch first. I wanted to know more about her beliefs and her side of things. And then I read the satanic Bible. At the same time, I'm doing the Milwaukee Metal Fest and a white supremacist group. What do you mean uh, doing the Milwaukee Metal Fest? I worked on it. I was uh, uh, booking bands. I was coming up with ideas like let's do vendor tables revenue got it, streams got it. great great program book all that i so know I, you don't love this but like you have a rough few year range that that might have been around 90s early 90s that's, that sounds like 1993 94 90, yeah, 90, yeah okay so so these the resistance records was a white supremacist record label and they wanted to advertise and i was like i don't know what to do here every one of my White friends are like you can't take the ad. Now Dina Weinstein, she's she's a DePaul University. She I loved her. She's great. I took a couple classes. Okay, but only good thing to come out of my four years of attending college. Okay, yeah. so so Dina, she's like was a writer for me and good friend, and she's like you have to take the ad, and I'm like really, and she's like yeah, you give them too much power if you don't just take the ad, no one will care, and then there was a person of color was doing the cover art and he said, you have to, he said the same thing. So I went with what they said. And, and so this George Birdie, George Eric Hawthorne, uh, he sent me might is right. And so I'm reading it at the same time I'm reading the satanic Bible. And I'm like, this is the same fucking book, but there's the, the hate, the, like the, the hate, hateful words like pointed at a certain culture was taken out of LeVay's, content you know his book and so i was like i brought it to the young lady that that i was dating at the time and say hey check this out it's this is the book they levey ripped off and she goes no everyone rips off levey they ripped off levey and i'm like no this is a hundred year old book and she didn't know about it and all these other satanists i would say this to didn't know about it so i'm like oh i'm republishing this book because Lumpanics at the time published it but they didn't they weren't selling any and i'm like i i saw something to exploit and I was like, oh, I can market this to Satanists and stuff like that. And 
So I wrote to Anton LaVey and told him I'm going to, I threatened him and I sent him a hundred dollars and I said, this is for you to respond to my, my message. It's not for a membership or anything like that. I, I just want you to respond because I'm going to market this as something you plagiarized. You have a chance to write the forward or, or not. I'm going to tell the world about it though. And he wrote back, faxed me right away and took the offer up and they liked it and invited me out to their house. And, and so hold on, Wait, let's, let's stop. Let's, let's stop. There are just okay. a, a lot of things to unpack. One, sorry. Why did you send him a hundred dollars to, uh, and Tom LeVay is faxing you three. Um, sorry, you <laughs> blackmailed him into writing the forward to your book. Is, is so I did not me, blackmail okay. him. I don't think it's blackmail. I just it's told him mail. you do. I said white mail. I wanted to make a point. I don't think it's easy. I thought I thought I just told him what I was going to do. I said, here's your chance. I gave him a chance. I did not blackmail. But I see what you're saying. But <laughs> I no, just no, help me understand. So wait, wait where, where does $100 come in? Okay. So when I would, as a publisher, when I would write someone who was a, a, a published artist or, you know, someone that was making money off their art and I wanted to work with them or publish them. I would send them $100 and ask them just to reply to, you know, just say no, but reply to me. You know, let this rise to the top of your stack of to-do lists because they've got a lot of to-dos. <laughs> and so that would, they would take me seriously. Can I ask, was there, I heard that the, uh, the German guy that made like a film with Bukowski in like somewhere around the 80s, that that was his tactic. He put like a $100 bill on each page and like it worked. He kept actually, he would normally discard male particularly from men but he kept reading and ended up doing a film with this guy did you was that an idea that you heard of or did you also just happen to come up with that as just realizing that would be an incentive for someone to pay attention that's just a chicago thing <laughs> you know you, you grease palms you like you know you want the trash man to not pick up your competitor's trash you give him a little money and so this is just how chicago works you want to respond that's just it that's that's where it came from and so LeVay loved it, and he, he wrote the afterward, and I, George Eric Hawthorne wrote the, he wrote the forward, the Nazi wrote the afterward, and then I got hate mail from Nazis saying, how can you have a, a Jew write the forward, and, and Satanists, you know, we're going to kill you, and they'd send death threats with their, their social security number under their name, because they were serious about threatening my life, and then the Satanists would send me notes saying, we're going to put a curse on you. You know, and so it, it went over well, is all I'm saying. And um, LeVay invited me out to his house and I met Anton LeVay and he made me a reverend in the Church of Satan and said I could represent them and talk about Satanism because he says I know it. He said, I know it so well. I know it naturally. I'm a natural born Satanist. And that's all there is. You can't you can't be you can't join Satanist. You are a Satanist. And so you're born a Satanist. And, and so I found it to be a, a, a interesting. I saw LaVey as a, not as a religion or the Church of Satan, but as a political and artistic movement. They started at the same time the Black Panthers or the Yippies. You know, LaVey was into that theater of the absurd. All the world's a stage. And I loved that culture and that time. So it was like a big honor to be involved with him. It was like, and as a metalhead, you know, Anton LaVey's, that was an Academy Award there too. Like that was like. That's the shit. <laughs> At some point too, I, I want. I have a, just. I need a good music chat. So I want to hear about like, like early, like what you were into, shows you went to, early shows you saw, punk shows, metal shows, bands, records. Levey played his organ for me 
in his kitchen. He had his organ, all of his electric organ set up in his kitchen. And it was just all keyboards and a refrigerator and stuff. And he played that fucking organ for 10 hours and it was just the greatest thing and then one time his son went to open the refrigerator and he's like no he jumps to shut the refrigerator because he didn't want us to see in the refrigerator because we'll you know profile him you know like you know the cycle but he had a big jug of wine in there and some margarine i thought margarine i can't believe it's not butter what the hell but that was the coolest experience it was cool because he'd go he goes that's rasputin's pipe or that's rasputin's chair don't touch it and i would touch it you know because i'm a freak like that if i go to museums sometimes i'll touch paintings and get in trouble i can't i'm it's like a magnet i don't mean to disrespect them but i, I have my problems and so he was like that's crowley's pipe don't touch it and i'd touch it uh, it was a fun time i mean i guess how mad can the head of the church of satan be at you for breaking the rules <laughs> he, he smiled the whole time he, he he enjoyed it he enjoyed it and he was born in chicago so it was cool didn't realize he that. had a Chicago. What? <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, he had a Chicago hustler flair. I, I love, I, I really enjoyed it, but it was like a political and artistic movement. And for me, it was like uh, something to, I did not, I thought, I think still, you know, church, religion, organized religion is, is, is a plague. And so for me, it was, you know, something that I could uh, leverage to poke a stick at that stuff. And um, and I did, right. So and I so so it. walk us through that your involvement in establishing the Satanic Temple in okay. Chicago. Okay. Well, in 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 period the Satanic Temple as a whole, um, Doug Mesner, Doug Doug Mesner, um, Lucine Greaves, the guy he's the spokesperson and one of the founders of the Satanic Temple, was my protege for about ten years, and so. We'd had this discussion before. He wanted to make a satanic lobbyist group and stuff like that. And, and so that's really a, a, against the philosophy of Satanism because you don't really, everyone's an individual. You can't really push, you know, for voting on either side. It's, you can, but it's not what, what the philosophy stands for. And so I was pretty much, I respect that philosophy and my take on it. So I was never into that. But Doug, Doug pitched me on, hey, let's do this, a mockumentary and use Satanism as, as the, you know, the theme. And I was like, okay. And so we started working on a film <clears throat> to mock religion. And, and so I was to be the first Lucy and Greaves. And, and so I consulted them and like their logo was awful and a lot of stuff they did was awful. So I had to help fine tune the Satanic Temple. And the first couple actions were my ideas, um, like this, the, the statue um, and the uh, balls on uh, the God hates fags, mother's grave, stuff like that. Like those were, that was my input. And uh, when Doug came to me and said, you know, I want to, I'm going to make this, I want to make this a religion. I can, we can make some money off this. And uh, I want to retire in Italy on a wheat farm. And I think I can do that with the satanic temple. And I was like, I have no interest in that. And I think it's, it's, it's uh, irresponsible. Well, what was the idea? What were you what What were you trying to do? Establishing the Satanic Temple in Chicago. What does that mean? Well, it wasn't in Chicago necessarily. It was It was just the Satanic Temple online at the, mm. that point. Uh, the Satanic Temple has groups all over the world now. It wasn't about establishing a, a group. It was about creating 
a joke, like a like the Yes Men, where we would mock. Like the first one was um, the Florida guy, Rick Scott, and I forget exactly what he was doing down there, but it was something. He was pushing religion into law. And so we went down there and said, you know, we want to say, well, we, as a religion, if you're going to push Christianity, we have the same rights. And so it was the same thing with the, like the statues. If you're going to put religious statues on your, on government property, we have the same rights. We're a religion. And, and so it was meant to mock and, and make a film. That was the point of it was just to make a film and to see the stuff unfold. It wasn't to make a religion and, you know, especially religion like the Satanic Temple, where they'll tell people, you don't have to be a Satanist to be a Satanist. I mean, it absolutely means nothing, that, that group. And, and I say it's like irresponsible because young kids get involved in this stuff as, as rebellion and stuff like that. And you sort of throw them under the bus when, when, when you're making political. It's good to be, have that mystical element like they don't know what we believe in. Versus, oh, you guys are liberals, or oh, you guys are this. You know, they can start nailing us to the wall. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's that's probably not the best thing. And those aren't the best people to work with either, as people that want to be nailed to the wall. Um, you know, they want to be martyrs, and and that's far away from living a a, a life of pleasure. And that's basically the root of Satanism is to get the most pleasure out of this existence because there is nothing after this that we know of. So, you know, just deal right now and have fun and do the best you can with what you have. And, you know, be able to understand, you know, pick yourself up and brush yourself off when you fall down and keep moving forward the best you can. That's that's the essence of what LaVey's Satanism is. You described yourself or you said LaVey said you were a natural born Satanist. What does that mean? Well, I think he, he considers it someone that's born, almost like an alpha or, you know, like that kind of stuff. I don't consider myself an alpha or anything like that, but I, he, he considers it something that you're born, the beast of the field, someone who <laughs> Catholic school couldn't break me. I guess that might illustrate it. Like, I'm just myself, and I just do me, and, and I can't help but do that, and... and uh, that's the best way I can explain it as far as a natural Satanist. It's people who are pretty firm on, on moving in this direction, moving in the direction of their goals and stuff like that. Though in my life, you know, when you talk about art, I feel like I don't believe in free will either. So I feel like I've been pulled along in, in my existence, like just pulls me. I don't, I, I don't, yeah, my life is, uh, I'm a ma there's something that magnetizes me to where I'm going versus me having a plan. <laughs> hmm. I have no real plan. I just make what I want each day and put it out there. And it's, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's hard for me to see my output and look backwards and see how much I do and how little I have. <laughs> you mentioned Milwaukee. No, I can't even get into it, but. We'll, we'll, we're going to cut this from the podcast, but uh, it's just uh, <laughs> no, we're not. This is going to be the best part. <laughs> no, it's just you mentioned Milwaukee Metal Fest, and I have a memory of my friend Bruce Robinson uh, going up there for it and stopping off at a safe house in Milwaukee. Do you know that bar? Safe yeah. house is like started in the 1960s, a spy themed bar, and uh, the bartender, you know, comes over and brings him this strawberry daiquiri 
He says, it's from that guy over there. And, uh, and he, he looks over and it was Rob Halford. And, uh, <laughs> and it was, <laughs> oh, I think it was before great. Rob Halford was out, you know, it was just kind of, it was like, and, but my friend who was like short, had like short blonde hair, you know, did not look like a guy who was on his way to a uh, Milwaukee metal fest kind of goes running over. He's like, are you Rob Halford? He's like, <laughs> and just kind of proceeds to like talk his ear off and kind of never really addresses that Rob was trying to pick. Oh, him up. that's, but anyway. that's such high honor. I want Rob Halford to buy me a strawberry daiquiri, man. That's great. <laughs> All right, well, as long as we're talking about music, I'm going to hit you up one more time. Like, early 90s, what bands were you seeing? What venues were you going to? What was going on? Oh, what was that The place in... Um, oh, fuck. It was in Wicker Park. I forget the name of it, but Fugazi played there. You know, my memory's gone. The Exit would have shows. Sometimes you go to that. Um, the best stuff that was in Chicago wasn't these tour, but Chicago stuff was Wax Tracks. That shit was off the hook. And going to those shows, seeing Revolting Cocks and, and, and Pigface and Ministry and all these things early. My goodness, Pigface shows, they were having sex on the stage. You know, there was, you know, and, Come on, and from that's not my true. young perspective. Not true. What? I don't believe it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, at the Metro. I, I watched, watched, dude. I feel like Metro does not care for a man blowing another yeah. man on stage. And I was just like blown away by a whole thing. I was like, this is. No pun intended. Uh, what blown yeah it, it, that is absolutely <laughs> true um absolutely true i saw absolutely one big face show at metro and it must have uh, apparently I, I went to the wrong one i read chris Connolly's book he works at reckless you could just go I know. Bug, bug him if you want i was because to me like I, again i was like early high school like maybe like a freshman so all that stuff like we would listen to that thrill kill cult record and be like yeah. are these guys like really satanic drug using murderers like we had they were I think, <laughs> well you, i was surprised when reading his book there was so much like goth groupies and coke going on <laughs> and i just i didn't know that was a part of <laughs> i wouldn't have suspected at the time that that was a part of that scene favorite show was revco with m m the mentors opening up for them at the riviera that was just a wonderful wonderful show um, and then, you know what, when I was living on the streets in, in Boys Town over there, you know, by 90th floor, the ministry people would come across the street to Mickey's. They were friends and they, they befriended me and they took my zine naked aggression on the road to Lollapalooza. But before that, they would let me come over there and hang out. And, and I was watching them record the album uh, with Psalm 69. I forget Jesus built my hot rod, all that, but they let me watch their practice to do the recording to stay warm and all that and it was the coolest thing but i'm getting to watch them do all these drugs and then they get and, and just it was great to watch what a crazy thing because you know growing up you don't, you don't know how big it's going to be i just know these guys as a chicago band mm -hmm. and then and then they give me a cassette of the album and yeah. i'm like the only person outside of that studio that has one so i used it i leverage it to get into re radio shows and, and say, hey, I have the new ministry tape. I can put it in your cassette player and play it. But you have to plug my zine, Naked Aggression. So I'd go on all these radio shows and I'd have to hold the cassette and put it in there and take it out. Because, you know, they said no copies, but I could play it forever I wanted. So it was, that was the coolest thing that got me in places, that, that cassette. Jason, you told me that you went up to Al Jorgensen while he was DJing and requested, oh, what's the Halloween is every day? <laughs> and he got real mad. Oh, yeah. Did I make that up? I swear no, you told no, me No, no, no. He was, it was uh, a club foot in Wicker Park. He was uh, spinning there and he was spinning 
you know, basically a bunch of people turned out because like Al Jorgensen's DJing, but all he played were standards. So throughout the night, we had like a you know just I would what go up. What standards mean? Like, like Frank old, Sinatra? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah like... Sinatra primarily Sinatra. <laughs> so and I love Frank Sinatra, and so we had a lot of really good talks about you know Frank Sinatra songs and Capital versus Reprise and and so on and so forth and different versions and and but of course you know so had a good bond with with Al while he was spinning and about you know Sinatra and then you know had a few too many by the end of the night I kind of just went up and I said by the way I've got to say that with sympathy is your best album <laughs> at which point he just kind of like looked so offended and just turned away from me and would not speak to me again so that was the end I love that I love that so so just last year I was able to do the ministry I was able to do Al Jurgensen's mic stand in Baltimore, I mean, in, in uh, Manhattan for the, this small tour he did where he played songs off of With Sympathy and everything else. He played, wow. yeah, it was crazy. I was, it was such an honor, you know, as a young kid to watch that and then to be able to make up, you know, with my artwork, uh, his mic stand. Well, I don't know. It's cool. But how does that, how does that work? Kid. What is that gig? Tell me about the commissioning process and, and, and the, uh, the specs, <laughs> like, Oh, that's great. Um, okay, so uh, I just wrote, I saw that Al, Al Jurgensen has a, a, a girlfriend online. <laughs> and I wrote her and said, hey, I knew Al back in this day. And, he, you know, I knew them. And I told her the story basically that I told here, but real brief. And, you know, if you ask Al, he'll know who I am. And she was like, we're out of mic on, on, twi- on, on Instagram. We, they wouldn't let our mic stands through the airport. So we need someone to make a mic stand. And so I wrote her and said, I can do this and in Chicago. And, and so I was going to do it in Chicago. And then he has so many friends in Chicago. They had someone else. But she's like, if you want to do do um, Manhattan, you can. You're invited to. And so that was that. And they paid me, you know, basically enough to rent a car and come out there and come back. So I didn't, you know, it was, I did it purely for the fun. And it was great. It was great fun. That's crazy. But they don't pay a lot. Like like ministry used to ministry used to get like we need fifty thousand dollars for an album cover, and then they'd pay Shane Swank two hundred dollars <laughs> for a painting, and then they'd use the rest for drugs. And so that's <laughs> you asked me about clubs. One I remember, I think the name it was Medusa's. Mm-hmm. I think there was that a club was just before my time. Right, and so I would go there all the time. That was a great time, and like that's where I met like Pantera. They played in front of like twenty people. And uh, like, hey, Shane, girl. I was at that show. Was, uh, really? Pantera, pro- Pantera and, prong? and Prong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. became friends with Dimebag Daryl at that show. Like every Christmas <laughs> he would buy product from my publishing company. It was it was really neat. Sweet. That is. Yeah. Man, I heard about Medusas all the time. I was just like too young. I couldn't drive. Even when I could, no one would come into the city with me. And that place was <sighs> just didn't overlap with my being able to go do stuff. Um, you mentioned Mike Diana a ways back. Can you talk to us about your involvement with uh, Mike and, and publishing him and so on and so forth? I'd love to. <clears throat> I, I, lo- I, I love to and I hate to. Mike is, um, you know, really, a, it's an ups- that's an upsetting topic for me. Oh. I, um, I mean, people wouldn't know who Mike Diana was without me. And I was not included in the documentary at all. They cut me out totally. And I feel like that's just, um, I was, you know, I just felt so uh, 
I feel so upset right now about it, it you know. But when Mike Diana's case happened, he was working with me on Naked Aggression. He was going to do some art for it. And he wrote me and said, I can't do the artwork because I was just arrested and I, they, I can't do any artwork. I'm not doing anything. And, you know, I said, hey, Mike, don't worry. If they bust you, someone else will publish it. This can't happen. Don't worry about it. Wait, wait, and, wait let's, let's, let's slow down okay. a bit. Talk, talk to us about the first time you became acquainted with his work and, and how would you and how you describe his work. Oh, well, I just saw him in, you know, zine culture. And, and through Fact Sheet 5 and stuff like that, you would trade zines or find someone to write to. And I can't remember if I wrote to him out of Fact Sheet 5 or I saw a zine with his artwork in it and I wrote to him. But it was just one of those things. I sent him $5 to get the zine because it was, it was a, a buzz in the zine world amongst the 20 of us that were doing zines. No, maybe 200. But, um, and so that's how and we became quick, immediately friends because we speak the same language, trailer park, metalhead. So it's like we just became great friends. And, and <clears throat> how do you describe his work? I, well, I thought his work, it spoke to me. It was very honest and brutal. And, and, and that's what I saw out of my trailer park. So the, the one that got me that I loved was Priest Fuck Little Boys. That was one of my favorite illustrations. And I was just like, this is great. What, you know, this is just great. The Band-Aids on all of his characters, the big dicks, you know, the brutality of it. I was like, this is reality. And so right there, I'm, I'm entering into this transgressive art movement that I don't really understand as becoming an art movement at the time. But that was like, I think, to encapsulate that, that was like the baby boomers gave the Gen Xers their rage as a gift, their anger. And we, we explored that through this angry artwork, this really angry artwork. And uh, Mike was the king illustrator of the transgressive art movement. I mean, he just, he really was able to sum up that world. He was paying attention to the ills of society, serial killers and, and things that were being ignored, like drug abuse. He'd have like syringes in his artwork. And so I, I felt like he was, he was exploring stuff that was being hidden. And that's what a lot of what we were doing in the zine world, I think, was exploring things that were between the lines of articles like if they wrote about a serial killer we were exploring it and and putting out the zines where they you know they were they were too professional or too mainstream to explore these serial killers or report on it like it should be very factual and honest and brutal you know and 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 they almost you know erot they made a serial killing erotic almost when you read it in the newspaper and it's far from that and so Mike was just that. That's what I saw in Mike's artwork, um, you know, and I loved it. I fell in love with it, fell in love with him as a person. Uh, you know, we were great friends. We wrote each other every day. It was like we were changing messages all the time. And and so this was happening while I was going to court. And I remember I drove down there so twice. Real quick, so just, just again, for like the listeners who might not be acquainted there's an arrest or something something bad happens what is that something bad right mike was a uh, mike was investigated for being a serial killer his you know because his, the local authorities in pinellas county florida a very conservative area had had been tipped off to mike's artwork and so they started to investigate him on the down low and uh, writing him and getting buying his magazines and so they tried to pin stuff on him <clears throat> Eventually, he was brought up on obscenity charges and arrested and his, you know, artwork was, you know, 
they were going to seize his artwork and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, he was going through an obscenity trial. As that was happening, after he was arrested before the trial, right when we were communicating, you know, he, he was just arrested. So he's like, I can't turn in any artwork. I'm, I'm afraid. And so I drove down there with a friend and made a deal with Mike that I would start publishing his stuff and they'd have to come after me. And, um, you know, and if, if they come after me, someone else will publish it. But we should keep this alive and not let them win. We should just keep your, the, the books that they want to pub, the, they want to suppress alive. And so that was, a, that was a good time, me and Mike hanging out that time. It was funny. You know, it was just a cool time. And then I went down there for the obscenity trial. And I remember him picking me up in this huge Cadillac and uh, driving across town and drinking a 40 ouncer and looking at me the whole time like his body was turned my way in this huge Cadillac as he's driving. He's not watching the road. He's drinking, looking at me. And I'm like, Mike, you got to look at the road. And he's like, yeah, dude. You know, he's like, oh, stop signs are for old ladies. And it was just, I don't know. We had a good, we had a good friendship. And that was a good moment, the obscenity trial and stuff like that. Um, that, that, you know, I did the first artwork show with Mike, brought him into Chicago and did, you know, cause then I, then that's where I got goat gallery, um, in the Metro. And, um, so I painted the walls black and that was the, I got the Metro. I did this art gallery just because no one would hang Mike's artwork and I needed to help this case. I needed to help him win his case. So because some of the argument was he's not an artist, this is an art. I figured once we hang it in a gallery, it becomes artwork. And at that point, I was a person who only went to galleries like I was the person who left fingerprints and nose prints on the window. I didn't go in a gallery. I looked through the window. And, and so I started a gallery without really knowing what they were. <clears throat> so I painted the walls black because everyone did white walls. And I'm like, black makes shit pop. Fucking white absorbs it. White sucks for galleries. And so it was great. We did the first Mike Diana show, Macabre. The metal band played their first acoustic show there. Hmm. And um, big turnout. Mike got all these headlines around Chicago and was really taken as an artist. And that helped his case a lot. And um, that was neat. I mean, eventually, I, I know Genesis Pjorge came into Goat Gallery and showed his, his dick piercings. And Clive Barker loved, loved Goat Gallery because he always imagined a gallery with black walls. And we were the first ones. So it was a really neat experience, short-lived. Um, it was only like four months, and Joe couldn't handle it anymore because then I, was, I did something with serial killers, and the neighborhood complained to Joe too much about my gallery. and So we were out, and Joe had a person come in and f perform an exorcism, a priest come in and bless the place after <laughs> I left, which I thought was a, a pretty cool high, high mark, high water mark in my life. Nice. I think I had one last question I wanted to ask you, which was just sort of like, when did you get that first like inkling? Like you grow up, you're like a kid. Kids are just pretty like, you know, normal. You're told to go to school or whatever. When did you get that kind of, uh, no pun intended, bug to sort of get drawn into like counterculture and, and want to be interested in and active in that? Oh, well, counterculture. Well, I've always drawn my problems out in, in, in crayons or whatever. I always presented pictures to people like teachers or my parents. So that was always there. The Picasso, there's moments here. The Picasso statue downtown when I went and saw this and saw all the hoopla, like the media of, of them not wanting this statue down there. And people were upset that they were spending money on this. And knowing that history and as a kid going there and being able to climb on this 
this huge Picasso was like crazy. And that really, I wanted to do something like that. I'm like, I want to make something like this someday, like this big. <clears throat> and then there was the Bucktown Pub. That's where they pulled me in and told me what I was. They were like, you are this. It was the same like when I went around and did the, the, that book where we toured, The Year at the Wheel. Edwin Kagan, the lawyer for the uh, American uh, Atheist, was, uh, he said, you're an itinerant filmmaker and an author. And that was the first time someone had called me that. So I took the title, you know. And so those are the those are the ways I didn't really understand what underground culture was. I didn't know who Ginsburg was when I met him. And I talked a lot of shit to him and he loved it, you know, because I didn't know who he was. And I didn't have the same ass kissing respect that everyone around him had. I was a young person that was picking on him. Mm -hmm. And, and then now that I'm older, I got young people that do it to me. And I sort of love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Wait, let's talk a bit uh, about the Bucktown Pub for a moment because that's something you and I have in common. Uh, I mean, I became friends with Jay Lynch when I was 15 years old and he was a mentor to me as well. And oh. so through Jay and his then girlfriend and later wife uh, and later ex-wife, uh, Carol Sobosinski, I, um, I got introduced to uh, Mike... Uncle Mike at the Bucktown Pub because they were kind of the backers of Bonus, which was a, a free, uh, a free monthly magazine uh, focusing on comics, underground comics. First issue had Robert Crumb. Second issue, a lot of Skip Williamson stuff. I had some cartoons in the second issue, um, but I kind of got sucked into the production of that. You know, just working as like a basically a paste up artist and all around gopher, and so. I remember, I think some, you know, the support that came from the Bucktown pub sometimes came in the form of uh, hamburgers. I mean, like they like grilled some hamburgers and then I, I went, I was sent over to the Bucktown pub to pick them up and, and then bring them back to Carol and the team. And, and, uh, but, but I also had volunteered to go pick up the print run of the second issue. And I remember, you know, borrowing my mom's van to go, uh, pick up the print run but the problem was that they hadn't paid for it so I remember I was in high school you know so it was myself and my friend Don Schrader uh, maybe my senior our senior year in high school and we're just sitting around all day at the Bucktown pub while Uncle Mike calls around and tries to scrounge up enough money to be able to bring to the printer to actually turn over the physical copies of this thing and we sat there for must have been like six hours and at some point eventually Uncle Mike, you know, says, you guys want a beer? And we're like, yes, we want a beer. You know, like we're, you know, 17 years old and, and, and we're sitting in a bar and like, yes, we want a beer. And, and he's like, well, you got to come back here and drink it. And so he takes us into like the back little kitchen area. Or it wasn't even a kitchen area. It was basically like there was enough room for two people to stand close to each other. And we just stood there right. like sipping our beers and uh but uh, sorry but the bucktown pub was also the underground comics hall of fame so it was a bar in bucktown but had you know an amazing collection of original art and and tell us more about it because you obviously know more about it than i do because you actually worked there we have a very similar experience with picking up a magazine that didn't get paid for um, mike mike johnson <laughs> well chris palmer his his girl friend his wife his woman they were partners um she was behind a lot of that stuff. She did a lot of work she never got credit for, um, kept the bar open, kept money coming in. But um, boy, yeah, they, um, 
I, I replaced Carol Sobosinski. I replaced Bonus. They when they've had a falling out with Bonus, mm-hmm. that's who I, I was the guy that they were interviewing to come in and keep doing it. And we changed the name to Chicago Cartoon and Poster Company or Chicago Cartoon. And the first copy of that had a uh, cover with uh, Terry LeBan. Mm-hmm. And I believe Hamster Man was in there. Oh, there if yeah. I'm not yeah, very well if I'm be. not mistaken. So Hamster Man yeah, because- was done by my friend Paul Kube and you know, Paul and I started Rocco Comics back when we were 15 years old, and that became our little mini, our small press publishing empire turned record label turned blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe that was in there. And and so they had me as the editor. But the thing is, you know, (laughs) my grammar is not there. Okay. I'm not, should not be a, 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 an editor like that. (laughs) I'm more of a publisher than an editor. Um, you froze up, by the way, Jason. But uh, so the Bucktown Pub, Mike Johnson, the Chicago Cartoon second issue is one of the rarest comic books in the world because there's only three of them that exist. I went to the publisher to pick them up <laughs> and they wouldn't release them. And I grabbed three. I said, well, I need these three to bring back there. And, and uh, so. I've argued with Jay Lynch. Jay Lynch, like, this is the most, the rarest comic in the world. And I'm like, no, I've got the rarest comic. And so (laughs) we have an argument that I still look back on on Facebook sometimes when I get sentimental about Jay. And I look at that conversation. And Jay Lynch was a great person to meet at the Bucktown Pub for certain. (laughs) And Skip Williamson and and Grass Green. Mm -hmm. All those people. It was great. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Gilbert Sheldon. Came into town for one of the uh, comic, uh, the Comics Underground Hall of Fame, and um, my friend Dave the Bong picked him up at the airport. <laughs> and uh, Dave used to dress as a bong at weed rallies and smoked him up, and that was just the greatest time. That was a great time. The Bucktown Pub was totally fun. Um, I used to, they 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 put me up in in Humble Park at an apartment that Bill Camper owned, that was rat infested. And there was blood always. Humble Park is nothing like it was then, today. <clears throat> and so there was always pools of blood and shootings out there. And so I lived there. And then they would give me, they gave me a job where I'd come in on the weekends and clean the Bucktown Pub, clean the toilets and everything like <laughs> that. And then they eventually gave me a gig as a bartender. And they gave me Sundays, which was lame, but I packed the place because, you know, I did some cool stuff or whatever. And, that was a good time. That was a great time. So, so you were editor slash to... toilet cleaner. That was yeah. That I was toilet role. cleaner, but I also had the keys to a bar. <laughs> so at three in the morning, when all the bars closed, I'm like, "Hey, let's go to the Bucktown Pub. We just got to be quiet, you know, like a little quiet." But you know, we'd go there and drink till six in the morning. You know, it was neat to have the keys to the Bucktown Pub, and it was great to clean there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I got Goat Gallery, Mike was really upset with me and he called the police on me and said I threatened his life. And uh, 50 cops stormed the Metro and I got away as a, uh, during a Koz, Frank Kozik poster show. And I got away from them and Joe Shanahan ends up calling me, Shane, please come back. They're about to raid and I have a bar. They're going to raid, raid the place and pull everyone out and I ca- card them. I can't have that, Shane. <laughs> I'm like, Joe, I'm not coming back until I have a lawyer. There's something fucking crazy. Those are Chicago cops. Because I just got in a cab and went to Union Station and booked it out to the suburbs. And as the cab passes my loft, 
there's fucking six cop cars out in front of there and they're trying banging on the door and i'm like holy fuck mike johnson really pulled out he really wanted me in trouble and then when i came back i had a lawyer and everything and they, and they arrest me and they send me down to the worst jail in, in in downtown Chicago and they I go up six floors and the further up you got the more blood on people's white t-shirts they had and it was scary oh man anyway so, sorry so, it went so off I, on that <laughs> so you did threaten his life wait and so sorry this is this is the white panther who's calling in the police on you <laughs> no Mike Johnson yeah oh was he who was not part of the white panthers Uncle Mike from the Bucktown Pub, yeah, the yeah, owner. Yeah. No, he was yeah. not a he was not a White Panther. He was just a realtor. He was a he was a he was like a, there was con men that would come in there and say I'm a con man as as they were drinking. And Mike's one of the greatest con men ever. Con men ever, and uh, you know that's what they would say. Well, wait. How do we end? I know we already you gave your end Man, your we, end question and we kind of ended we've talked about this every episode it's like uh well i guess like we're done <laughs> we gotta get smoother on this it's <laughs> true it's true maybe a theme you guys could we could sing everyone can whistle so okay we, i don't know is that an original or is that yes that? that's an original i was working on that one cool well thank you so much shane Thank you. you. Yeah, thank you very much. That was great. Very good to thank see you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Good to see you. Great. I really appreciate this. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for taking the time.